Let me uh, open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your uh, grace to us in Christ, and how through your powerful work of conversion in our lives that you have brought us to faith in him and enriched us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We thank you for our calling and our justification, our adoption, our sanctification. We praise you. You have given us so much in Christ, unfathomable blessings. And uh, we trust wholly in him, not in our own works, not in our own merit um, or worth in and of ourselves, but wholly in him and his worth. And uh, as we come again this Lord's Day to worship you, we just pray that you would draw near to us as we seek you out from your word. We pray that even in this class right now, through Nahum and Habakkuk, these books that you have put into the canon of scripture, that we would get out of them what you would have for us. Even as we're taking not a deep dive, but an overview look at them, that you would still feed our souls and nourish us with their message and teaching. Uh, Please take me up and help me to teach the class well and effectively. And we also pray for the whole service today as we have a full service with uh, baptism and membership reception and elder ordination and as well as all the normal things. And so we just pray for your rich blessing upon us throughout this Lord's Day, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, so let's start into Nahum. If you would turn there in your Bibles, if you haven't already, Nahum chapter 1. And um, we're going to start with just, as always, some introductory matters here. First, the author of Nahum. All we know is that it says in verse 1, uh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So, but we, I don't think that we even know where Elkosh was. We're going to start with author of the book of Nahum. All we know is that it was written by a guy named Nahum. Which, uh, actually, if you, if you know the city of Capernaum, you know that it is connected in some way with, the, with that same name. But we don't, unfortunately, don't know much about him. Uh, Unlike some of the other prophets that we know more about, he's somewhat of a mysterious character. When was Nahum written? Okay, there's a few ways that we can narrow in the date. One is that it's mentioned in the book, chapter 3, verse 8, the conquest by the Assyrians of the, what was then the ancient capital of Egypt, a city named Thebes. And it mentions that it was conquered by the Assyrians already. And we know when that happened. That was 664 BC, really at the height of the Assyrian power. They'd gone all the way down into Egypt and conquered the great empire of Egypt and uh, overthrew their capital city. So we know it must have been after 664, but before the fall of Nineveh, Obviously, they were still at the height of their power. We know that that happened in 612. And it seems like Nahum was written before Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrian Empire really began to decline in power, which happened after the death of a particular king named Assurbanipal. And so that would have happened in about 630. So we know that probably Nahum was written between 664 B.C. and 630 B.C., Um, at the height of Assyrian power. Um, In terms of who it was written to, 
Well, this is um, a book that was written after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. So obviously the primary recipients would have been the southern kingdom of Judah. And also <clears throat> the fact that um, it con- it, or the, the oracle is written to Judah, but it concerns primarily the city of Nineveh. And you can see that in chapter 1, verse 1. So it says an oracle concerning Nineveh. So written for the reader, for Israelite readers, but concerning the capital city of the great Assyrian Empire, um, the city of Nineveh, which we're already familiar with, which sort of brings us to our next slide, which is the historical background. I just want to kind of walk you through a little bit of what was going on at this time that this book was written. Um, If you go back a little ways in history, about 100 years or so, Assyria became sort of the dominant superpower in the region. And um, it was under a great king named Tiglath-Pileser III that they that they became the sort of superpower. That's 745 BC. Uh, They conquered and exiled Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, in 722 BC. Then a great Assyrian king named Sennacherib made Nineveh the Assyrian capital in 700 BC. So we're working our way closer to the book of, uh, of Nahum. The empire sort of reached the height of its power when it, ha- when it conquered the city of Thebes, as I mentioned before, in 644 B.C. And we should, I just wanted to give you this quote from a scholar of, uh, who wrote a commentary on Nahum, and he describes what the Assyrian Empire was like. And so I just want to read it for you. He says, The vast Assyrian Empire was established by bloodshed and massacre, cruelty and torture, destruction, plundering, and exile, such as has seldom been seen in history. So, in other words, they were a great superpower. They stretched all the way across Mesopotamia down into Egypt, and they were notoriously cruel and wicked and um, violent as a superpower. You know, this would have been similar to uh, the, the great Mongol hordes that swept all the way from Asia into Europe and were known for this same type of excessive brutality. Um, but it wasn't long after the height of their power that a king named Assurbanipal, the last great Assyrian king, died. And after his death, the Assyrian Empire rapidly declined until it wasn't long, just a few decades later, that the Babylonians, the new imperial power in the region, actually overthrew, uh, the, Assyri- overthrew the city of Nineveh in 612 BC. And just a little note, many scholars have pointed to the book of Nahum as sort of like a sequel to Jonah. And that's because you remember, right, where was Jonah sent to prophesy? the city of Nineveh, um, that was um, when, that was back in the 700s BC. So before the time of Nahum, Jonah had gone to Nineveh and the city had repented at his preaching. So sometime in the 700s BC, and this was probably before Assyria 
really became the dominant power in the region. They were still very strong. They were a budding uh, imperial power, but they hadn't become the sort of dominant power that they would be later. And so, you know, that was sort of part one of the story. And you remember that uh, Jonah was quite upset that Nineveh would be spared God's judgment, right? Well, Nahum sort of answers the protestation of the prophet Jonah by predicting the downfall of Nineveh later on in history, between 660 and 630 BC, as we said. So uh, later on, decades after Jonah, what Jonah hoped would happen to Nineveh, obviously he was sinful in that desire, but it ended up happening. The empire um, had resumed its wicked ways by this time. You know, they repented in the days of Jonah, but by this time, you know, kings, other kings have risen and they've gone back to their cruel and wicked ways. And in fact, they're at the height of their power. And now Nahum is prophesying. This is, so in a sense, he's, Nahum is a sequel to the story that you read in the book of Jonah. All right, so any questions at this point on just the historical background and some of these introductory matters to the book? Okay. All right, so we're going to dive in. And actually, the book of Nahum is really only something like 47 verses. So we're going to just read through the whole thing. Um, but we're going to do so um, in a piecemeal fashion. So we're going to start with... Um, The first section, which is Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And uh, in this section, you see that God is presented in sort of a general fashion as both judge and savior. You're going to see that the Lord describes him, is, is described as holy and taking vengeance on the wicked with a wrath that is completely unstoppable. Also, you're going to see that the Lord is good and that he's going to save those who take refuge in him. Okay, so this opening section is really speaking generally about these aspects of God's character. So let's read together Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. What did I just do? An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And then we'll stop there. That brings us to the second section. In this second section, verses 9 through 15, so the rest of chapter 1, what we're going to see 
is again the theme of judgment and deliverance. But this time, the judgment is specifically against the city of Nineveh, while the deliverance is of his people Israel. So the Lord is, declares in this section that he's going to make an end of this rich and powerful city of Nineveh who has oppressed his people. And at the same time, he's going to deliver his people from Assyrian oppression and give his people peace. Okay, so let's read verses 9 through uh, 15. What do you plot against the Lord? And here, he's speaking now to the city of Nineveh. He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns. Like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut you off. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave For you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So the worthless, the wicked who oppresses Judah, that's Nineveh, about whom the first verse tells us this oracle is primarily about. But in the midst of us, you see, this announcement of good news to his people that God is going to cut off their oppressors and deliver them and they're going to have peace. Okay, so that's the first chapter of the book. The rest of the book, chapters 2 through 3, is really a series of judgment oracles upon the city of Nineveh. Um, And so we're going to walk through these just section by section. First, chapters 2, 1 through 9, Nineveh is described as being attacked and plundered. Let's read. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandish. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. So really what's being described here is Nahum is predicting the invading Babylonian armies coming in and sacking the city of Nineveh and taking them away, the residents off as slaves, and plundering the great wealth of that once prominent capital city of Assyria. 
Now, in the next section, the, the city of Nineveh is described as being once a mighty predator, a lion, who will now become prey, prey uh, to the Lord. So let's read in verses 10 through 13. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went? Where his cubs were with none to disturb, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So God is going to basically bring uh, this once fierce lion's den of Nineveh to an end. Now, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the next section, what you see is the reason why Nineveh would be destroyed. And it's because of their violence, their cruelty, their idolatry, their immorality. So there's a description of Nineveh in chapter 3, 1 through 4. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. That's why the Lord would de destroy the city of Nineveh, because of her wickedness. And then we see that this destruction, destruction is going to involve the Lord publicly shaming Nineveh, right? He's described her as a prostitute, and now he says what he's going to do. Verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face and will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Now the next section is verses 8 through 13. And what we see here is that even though Nineveh was such a great city, in the days of Nahum, it would have been unfathomable to think of Nineveh falling in the way that Nahum describes. And yet, here we see that God is saying, despite how great she is, she will be conquered. Just as it had conquered other nations, like Thebes and Cush, so it would itself be conquered. And so we read in verses 8 through 13, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her wall? Cush, which by the way, if you read Cush in the Bible, does anyone know what nation that today that would roughly correspond to in terms of the region? 
Yeah, Ethiopia. So this is a North African section that was once a great empire as well. Cush was her strength. Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men lots were cast and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops and women in your midst, the gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Next, as we draw near the end of the book, we see in verses 14 through 19 that despite her strength, Nineveh is not going to be able to resist this coming doom. So they may think that their armies are big enough, they could never be defeated, but in fact, that is not true. By the way, it's a sober warning to us here in America, isn't it? That uh, big armies won't save you from the judgment of God, right? Draw water for the siege. Verse 14. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will, be fi- there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. And then finally... I want to... Oh, sorry, we'll read the last two verses too. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not not come your unceasing evil. So, you can see the book of Nahum, largely an oracle of judgment against the city of Nineveh for its cruelty and wickedness, for its oppression of God's people, and woven into the midst of it, like in chapter 2, verse 2, are these announcements of good news to Israel that they will be saved and granted peace from their enemies. Okay. Now, that brings us to what Nahum teaches. Now... I want to start with just this theme here. Um, I think that this really could summarize up the main theme of the book of Nahum. That is that even though the enemies of God's people oppress them, even though those enemies might be very mighty, very powerful, God is described here as a jealous God that is jealous for his people, Right? So imagine if someone touches your bride, harms her in some way if you are a husband in this room, that holy jealousy that rises up by which you would seek to defend your bride. Well, that is the type of jealousy that God is described as having. And he is an avenging God. Now, we think of his vengeance as wrong because the Bible says to us, never take vengeance into your own hands, right? 
But what does he say? That there will be no vengeance? No. Leave it to the Lord, right? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So indeed, the Lord is the judge of all the earth, and he takes holy vengeance. What that means is that he repays all evil. And this is what Nahum is saying, is that God is a jealous and avenging God, and he will eventually overthrow and punish the enemies of his people, the wicked of the world, in judgment. So, I want you to think about how this plays out for us. If you think about the history of the church, you know, Israel was first oppressed by Babylon, and then later by Rome, and of course the New Covenant people were persecuted greatly by the Roman government. The first couple centuries of the church were a history of the most brutal attempts to stamp out Christianity from the face of the earth. And then, of course, you could look at how the Roman Catholic Church in its more beastly form as you get into the Middle Ages, where they sought to stamp out um, any kind of um, revival of the gospel, translating the Bible into the language of the people, teaching justification by faith. They sought to oppress and eliminate Uh, any kind of revival movement like that in the church. And then, of course, you had the Islamic Empire that sought to uh, stamp out Christianity in its imperial history, and even today. And then you think of something like the Third Reich, who sought to wipe out the confessing church in its rise to power, or in the, the USSR. If you've ever read Father, Brother, is it Brother Lawrence's book, The God Smuggler? And you get a simple, a little bit of a taste of what it was like to live as a Christian under the iron, behind the Iron Curtain. Or you think of today and, and through from the 1960s and 70s on, what it was like to live as a Christian through the communist revolution in China. And you think of the horrors that were, have been committed against God's people throughout history. And, you know, we read the language of Nahum and we, it's, it's so strong that you almost find it yourself recoiling at it. You know, could God really say that? Well, you know, we sit in our air-conditioned homes with three meals a day and our pantries packed with food. And if someone does something bad to us, we call the police. And in our area, where they generally come and take care of it, right? So little things, like someone cutting us off on the freeway, kind of make us really angry. We think we're being treated unjustly. But imagine... Imagine the horrors that Christians have gone through, right? Imagine the things that people have experienced that go beyond what we can comprehend. And then think, from that perspective, what you would think of God using this very strong language to speak of His vengeance, of how He will repay the enemies of His people, the wicked of the world, who commit violence and cruelty. Well, the martyrs, the martyrs cry out before his throne, How long, O Lord, before you will come and give us justice? And that's what a book like Nahum is saying. I will bring justice. And just as their wickedness has been fierce, so my repayment, my vengeance will be fierce. And so there is a sense in which, you know, if you find yourself recoiling at the language used in the book of Nahum, you need to check your own heart and say, you know, I just don't understand the gravity of human sin. I don't understand the depth of wickedness that God's people have experienced. 
I don't understand the holiness of God's character, the fierceness of his vengeance against the wicked. And that's why I struggle with these things. Not because there's anything wrong with the text. So one major theme is, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And, of course, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of this, this is against Nineveh, but the ultimate fulfillment of all of these atrocities committed against God's people throughout history will come in the final judgment, you know, surrounding the events of the second coming, the things we read about in Revelation 17, 9 and through 19, the fall of the great harlot, the ultimate Babylon, if you will. But at the same time, we see in the book of Nahum, this complementary theme that through the judgment of their enemies, God is going to, at the same time, deliver his people from oppression and restore their fortunes by vindicating them and glorifying them, not because they are worthy in and of themselves, but for his name's sake, because they are his covenant people and because of his grace. So, for instance... Probably summing up this complementary theme is chapter 2, verse 2. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And then, of course, verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. You know, sometimes the Lord does this for his people in the here and the now, like he was going to do for Judah with respect to the Assyrian Empire and the city of Nineveh. We see in, in the book of Acts. You remember when the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 5 arrested the apostles for preaching the gospel? And you remember what happened that night? There was an earthquake, and he released them from the prison and sent them back out in the streets to preach, right? So sometimes it's immediate. But at other times it won't be immediate. And so we await the final day. I think of these words that describe the final vindication and final salvation of God's people at the end of history when Christ returns in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's just turn there and let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay, there it is, right? The idea of vengeance or repayment. Repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not know, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You know, sometimes people think as Christians that we should never talk about, you know, the fact that God is going to judge our enemies well, the Bible does it all the time, right? You think of all the imprecatory psalms. You think of the prophecies like Nahum. You think of passages like this. 
Now, what do you think is the proper way to understand that, though? Is it that we read these and we go, yeah, get him, God? Is that it? Uh, not, not quite, right? I mean, I don't think there's supposed to be, when you read this, a sense of like happiness over the downfall of the wicked. Praise. Praise to God for his justice. Do you remember in Revelation 19 when, the, when it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great? Do you remember what the saints are said to do? They say, Hallelujah. Praise to our God. His just judgment has come. But what do you think is the main effect that this, is, this text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is supposed to have on us? What do you think? Well, that's what it's about. But what effect is it supposed to have? When you read it, we should be leaving it to him. Yes, leaving it to him. Okay. See, I don't disagree with any of those things you're saying. And there are texts that we could go to where that, that would be the emphasis, like your heart breaking for the lost as you read about their destruction. But here I think it's comfort, right? Paul had to lead the Thessalonians. He had to leave the Thessalonians as brand new Christians suffering terrible persecution. So what's he doing? Comforting them. A time is coming when there will be a great reversal of fortune. And God will afflict those who are now afflicting you. And he will grant relief to you who are afflicted. So it's like, hang on. Hang on. Comfort and encouragement. And I think the same type of thing would be true of Nahum. It's meant to comfort God's people in the face of a terrible enemy who is cruel and wicked, far more powerful, looks very great, looks unstoppable in their day. And God says, I am going to make an end to them. I am a jealous and avenging God. Behold, hear the good news. I'm coming to give you peace. Right? What about the New Testament and Nahum? Well, Nahum is actually one of a small number of Old Testament books that aren't ever cited or alluded to in the New Testament. Although it is true that Nahum 1.15, right? If you, if you go back to that verse, it looks very familiar, doesn't it? Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. That little phrase, the first part of that verse, actually sounds exactly like Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah was a, a, a previous prophet to Nahum. And together, that verse first uttered by Isaiah, later by Nahum, is cited in Romans 10, verse 15, right? And in Romans 10, what is the good news being referred to? It's not of the fall of Nineveh. It's of the coming. It's of the good news of the gospel. And so I think there's a sense in which the reason why, for instance, Isaiah 52, verse 7, is alluded to, is in, in Nahum one fifteen is there's this similarity, right? It's a Nahum is seeing that the coming restoration of Israel, and what the New Testament indicates is that coming restoration, that announcement of good news, news of deliverance from from your enemies, and and peace for God's people, 
finds its ultimate expression, its ultimate fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's Nahum. Any questions about, about Nahum? Before, besides, where did he get that name? Any questions about Nahum before we move to Habakkuk? Well, let's move to Habakkuk. A few uh, introductory things. Number one, chapter one, verse one says the oracle. Now, I'm just going to say Habakkuk. Some people like Habakkuk. It is kind of a cooler way to pronounce it, but I'm just going to go with the old standard Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, sorry. There I went with it. So, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Again, nothing else is really known about him. His dates, well, it seems to be chapter 1, verse 6, actually indicates, speaks of the rise of the um, Babylonians. And so we know that it probably took place in the period at the toward the end of toward the end of the Assyrian Empire when the Babylonians were on the rise eventually they would take over the Assyrian Empire or they would defeat and conquer and become the new superior power in the region so we know that it was before the Assyrian Empire fell probably toward the end of its reign Uh, at the beginning of the rise of the Babylonian Empire, but obviously before the Babylonians conquered uh, Judah, because Judah is still in existence while it's written. So we kind of, sometime in the late 7th century, early 6th century. Okay, and then the recipients, again, are the southern kingdom of Judah, because obviously they're the only ones around at this point. The northern kingdom's already been long defeated and taken into exile. But the southern kingdom is still there. However, it's clearly, as the Babylonians are on the rise, this is clearly on the downward slope of the power of the southern kingdom of Judah when they were in rapid decline and heading toward those two Babylonian invasions. Okay. So, from there, let's talk about some other literary features of the book of Habakkuk that are interesting. It's not really like the other prophets. It it never addresses the nation directly. Rather, what we see is it's sort of like a dialogue between God and the prophet Habakkuk. In fact, I I was thinking this, although, you know, I'm not an expert in wisdom literature, but it really has the feel to me of a wisdom book, like the book of Job where you're sort of overhearing this conversation, right? And there's the, the questions that Habakkuk is raising to God reflect questions that the readers have. And the answers that God gives to Habakkuk are going to provide answers to the reader's questions. So in a, re, in a wisdom book, that's sort of how it works. Like right? you're it, it develops an argument through something like this, through a dialogue between two people that you're overhearing. And the argument is sort of drawn out through a series of back and forth question and answers or point counterpoint. And so this lesson that is taught in the book of Habakkuk, again, sort of like a wisdom book, although it is a prophet, it is the, described as an oracle of a prophet. The readers, that is, the original readers and also us who read it 
By listening into the back and forth between God and Habakkuk, we learn the lesson of the book. Now, in terms of the purpose and message, let me just say that if you were an original reader, the purpose of the book and the message of the book has to do with this impending event that God was going to raise up the Babylonians and the Babylonians would judge, would be an instrument of God's judgment against Judah for its sin. That's what Habakkuk hears about from God. And Judah would have this question in their mind. What's God doing? I mean, this nation that, is, that he's using to judge us is worse than we are, right? So that old, that old um, question, why did the wicked prosper, right? And while, while God's people suffer, this is really the impetus for the book. This is what this book is about. Answering that question. How could God be just? How could God be just when he's used as a more wicked nation to judge his people? So the book of Habakkuk is designed to answer that question. And the, and the answer is essentially that, don't worry, God is going to judge them too, Right? In other words, all the wicked, Babylon included, are going to get their, the just punishment that they deserve. So God could use a more wicked nation to punish a less wicked nation without being unjust because by doing that, he's not, gonna, he's not foregoing their judgment. Um, it, it's just being delayed. Okay? So that brings us to an overview of the book of, of Habakkuk. And instead of reading this, we're going to have to sort of fly through it and just talk about it because we're almost out of time here. But we have a series of exchanges between Habakkuk and God. And the, the first exchange, and we will read these first four verses just to get a feel for how this works in Habakkuk. The first, in the first exchange, Habakkuk is praying to the Lord. Why he's, in, he's praying to the Lord about the wicked in Judah. So here he is a prophet. He's a righteous man. He's a believer in the covenant community. And he's, he's crying out to God and saying, God, look at all the wickedness going on in the covenant community. Aren't, aren't you going to do something about this? Right? So listen to what he says. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. Okay, so Habakkuk is hoping that God is going to judge the wicked in Israel. And guess what God says? Verses 5 through 11. I will, Habakkuk. I am going to judge the wicked in Israel. I'm going to raise up a nation, the Chaldeans, to do it. So listen to what it says in verses 5-11. through 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you should not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. 
At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Okay, so you get the feeling that how Habakkuk is going to respond to this, right? And he hears God's answer. I'm going to use this bitter and hasty nation, this wicked and idolatrous nation who is conquering throughout the earth. I'm going to use them to come and to bring the wickedness and injustice and violence in Israel to an end. Now Habakkuk's reply in chapter 1, verses 12 through 2-1. Wait a second, Lord! How can you do this? How can you use the Babylonians to punish Judah when they're even more wicked than we are, right? And that's basically his answer, his prayer in verses 12, chapter 12, chapter 1, verse 12 through 2, 1. And, and in, in essence, he keeps it general such that the issue is, but wait a second, but they're wicked too. So, the, Lord, your eyes are more so pure you cannot look upon evil. When are the wicked going to not prosper anymore? Right? You're going to use Babylon to punish Judah, but what about the Babylonians? And the Lord's reply is in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. And essentially, his answer is, don't worry. The Chaldeans, and indeed all the wicked, are going to be judged with a perfect judgment. Now, I do want to just read this last section because in this last chapter, Habakkuk sort of settles in his heart. Two things. One is he prays this prayer that I always remember my former pastor, co-pastor down in Sacramento, who would always, in his thick Scottish accent, he'd pray, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. Right? And I always used to say, that's a really good phrase. Where does that come from? It comes from Habakkuk 3, right? Where he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, of your work. O Lord, do I fear. This is verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Right? And so, first of all, he prays that God, in the midst of his wrath, as he judges evil in the world, that he would remember mercy, that he would not forsake mercy. And I think primarily he's thinking to to his people who have to go through it all, right? Who are going to be there in the midst of it, like himself, right? And then, but then at the end of the chapter, we see this wonderful section, a section which I've committed to memory because I've realized this needs to be the way that I think of it too, because Habakkuk knew that he was going to be in for some hard times, right? Babylonians were coming. They're going to judge Judah. And meanwhile, the righteous in Israel is still going to be there. And so what, what are they to do? And this is what it says. Uh, verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. 
So essentially he's saying, in the midst of your judgment, when things are bad, and I'm going to have to endure it, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And I'm going to take joy in Him. Because He is able to protect and preserve me through it all. Right? So the last slide, what does Habakkuk teach? Well, Habakkuk answers the question, why do the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous suffer, right? And the answer is, well, the situation's only temporary, right? <laughs> it's not going to be this way forever. Judgment will come upon the wicked. And the Lord will deliver the righteous out of it. But Habakkuk teaches us that he's going to do this in his appointed time, right? Habakkuk was anxious. He wanted it right away. Right? He wanted the wicked to be destroyed and the righteous to be saved. And the Lord said, wait. You're going to have to be in for some hard times. And meanwhile, he has reasons for letting things happen in this way, which he doesn't reveal to us. So much like many wisdom literature books, like you think of Job, the Lord didn't say, Job, let me explain to you all my purposes and all this. No, he just tells him, don't worry. You know, he tells Habakkuk, don't worry. The time's coming when my judgment will come. But he doesn't explain to Habakkuk why he's doing things the way that he's doing it. So, what are the righteous to do? Habakkuk teaches us that the righteous must simply trust the Lord and rejoice in his salvation, even when times are hard and they have to suffer in the midst of it all. Now, we would be remiss to address the book of Habakkuk and not speak about Habakkuk in the New Testament, right? Because you may well know that there is a very famous verse in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Now, that phrase in Habakkuk 2, 4. So let's, let's read the whole verse. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. The wicked, right? It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. Now, when you look in the context, it's pretty clear what is being said. So Habakkuk's point there, or the Lord's point through the prophet Habakkuk, is that in the context is that the, the proud and soul, they're not going to last God's judgment is going to come. The previous verse says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay, right? So the wicked are going to perish in the judgment, but the righteous shall live. That is, they will escape God's judgment by his faith because they believe. So the righteous are not perfect, they're called righteous because they are believers. Right? Now, this verse is picked up upon, it's used in three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, right? Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. And each time the New Testament uses this, what is happening is the New Testament writer is seeing this principle that the righteous will live. They will escape the judgment that's coming upon the wicked. 
by their faith, right? Because of their faith. They are righteous through faith, and therefore they will escape God's judgment. Well, that principle, the New Testament writers see that principle summed up so well in that little phrase as finding its ultimate expression in the gospel. Because what does the gospel say? Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus will be justified and therefore saved from the judgment that is coming upon the world at the end of the age. So, you know, Habakkuk is sort of zoomed in on this issue of the Babylonians coming and the wicked in Judah being judged. And Habakkuk here, he's one of righteous believers who are going to live through the judgment because of their faith. But the ultimate realization of that is in the gospel, right? That in the gospel, the gospel tells us that the just shall live by faith. Those who believe in Christ will be justified by faith and escape the wrath to come. All right, any questions about Habakkuk? Any questions? Okay, well, um, but feel free to come and talk to me if you have any questions. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful books that you've given to us. Lord, on the one hand, we find some things in these books to be startling, to be shocking in some ways to offend our natural sensibilities when we speak of your vengeance and your righteous wrath against sinners. And yet, Lord, we're humbled by that. We're reminded of the gravity of sin and the, the holiness of your character and the fierceness of your wrath against evil. And Lord, we are also reminded that no wrong will go unpunished that every, every evil deed will get its just desert. And we're reminded, Lord, of the glory of the cross, where our Lord Jesus took that punishment for our sins in our place, that we might be justified through simple faith in Him and live through the judgment as a gift. Oh God, we thank You for these books. Help us to learn from them. Help us to take their teaching into our hearts even this morning. And as we look around us and we see, yep, it's the same old world. The wicked seem to prosper. They oppress your people. They are mighty, stronger than us. Yet we know that judgment is coming. That every wrong will be repaid with perfect justice by you, the judge. And that we will live by faith. So Father, help us, comfort us with these things. Humble us and teach us to trust in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.